FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh from the Mayo Clinic, and with me is Dr. Michael Ackerman, a friend and colleague. Uh, Dr. Ackerman is Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Pharmacology, and his particular interest is in the inherited um, cardiac arrhythmias. Welcome, uh, Mike. And just from um, to begin, what particular arrhythmias do you want to discuss from a genetic and management standpoint? Well, good morning, Bernie, and it's great to get to be with you this morning. And well, when we think of the field of inherited heart rhythm syndromes or heritable arrhythmia syndromes or the cardiac channelopathies, we're really talking about a collection of genetic heart rhythm diseases that what they share in common is a predisposition to sudden death as a sentinel event. And so when I think of them, there's really about 12 or so heritable arrhythmia syndromes, but really it comes down to the big three. Long QT syndrome, the most common, catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, or CPVT, and Brugada syndrome. And so those really frame the framework of this really pretty new discipline within the heart rhythm specialties. So we'll get into the three of them individually, but just collectively, any general comments? I mean, I, they is it fair to say that they're... Um a rare cause of sudden death or an infrequent cause of sudden death, but but they certainly cause sudden cardiac death and in younger people? Yes, for sure. I mean, f- certainly compared to the 300,000 sudden deaths that occur each year, whatever that number is due to coronary artery disease in the elderly, these are relatively few and far between. We're talking collectively perhaps on the order of 1,000, 2,000, maybe 5,000 sudden deaths each year attributed to one of these three lesions or these heritable arrhythmia syndromes. But if you change the calculus a little bit, right, to lost life years, we're yes. talking about a dramatic switch in the mathematics. Yeah, because, because they're young. Yeah, because these are, we're talking so, five-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 30-year-olds. So in terms of sudden cardiac death in athletes, which has had quite a lot of uh, press, always has a lot of press, and rightly so, would you put this behind hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as the most frequent cause of sudden cardiac death in younger people, many of whom may be athletic? Yeah, we really don't have a great handle, do we, on, on really what are the causes in young people versus in young athletes. Certainly it looks like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most single most common cause, but if you look at sudden death in the young, it's breaking out that about half of these sudden death victims have a positive autopsy, but almost half don't. And under that rubric of autopsy negative sudden unexplained death in the young, that's really where these these cardiac channelopathies emerge because they don't leave any traces at autopsy. The hearts are structurally so normal. Except for molecular autopsy. Except for yeah, molecular it? autopsy. Mike, um, are they generally under-recognized? <laughs> Well, I think we have, we're in a state of a paradox in medicine where I think the warning signs are under-recognized and under-appreciated by the front line. So here we have long QT syndrome, which by itself is more common than all childhood leukemias combined, and yet the generalist, the family doctor, pediatrician, internist, emergency doc is probably more familiar with childhood leukemia than they are long QT. So the front lines may be under-recognizing the warning signs that should prompt a referral to a heart rhythm specialist, 
But then on the flip side, the heart rhythm specialists, I think we're in a phase in, within our community of a general overdiagnosis and overtreatment, and it's an interesting phenomenon. What do you mean by overtreatment? ICDs? ICDs, because I think uh, these diseases aren't in the sweet spot of heart rhythm specialists, if you think about it. Yes. If you think about uh, an adult heart rhythm specialist, it's been estimated that maybe 5 to 10% of his or her entire training is devoted to the genetic heart rhythm diseases. And maybe for a pediatric heart rhythm specialist, well, it's probably a little bit more, 10 that, to 20%. That's why, that's why we keep you here and <laughs> give you a job, right? so that we can refer them to you. Well, that's good to have Let's go to long QT. Yeah. And which I always struggle with because, I, first of all, I find it very difficult to measure the QT interval. And you've always made the point that it may be very variable. But in someone who has not had an event, uh, a cardiac arrest, but someone who has just had an electrocardiogram, what would prompt a referral in terms of the length of the QT interval? Well, we should probably back up before the length because I think your point is a great one. Um, I think everything hinges on the story for the aggressiveness of a channelopathic evaluation. So if you start with a high index of suspicion based upon the personals, the individual's storyline or their family history, we're gonna drive hard with ECGs, repeat ECGs, high lead ECGs, provocative tests, perhaps genetic testing. But to your point about- Provocative tests being catecholamine well, stimulation, stress testing. Stress test, uh, epinephrine QT stress test, right. treadmill cycle stress test. And is that to bring out the QT interval or to bring out arrhythmias or both? Uh, well, for long QT to bring out the QT interval for CPVT to unmask and bring out uh, exercise-induced arrhythmia. So we'll come back to CPVT but, but, in a moment, but stay on long QT. Yeah, and if you, what you asked is very important is what what line in the sand should be an incidental QTC line in the sand that prompts an evaluation? And I think that's uh, quite dicey right now because we've got the 440 millisecond line that's been called borderline. We've got 450 in men and 460 in, in women that's been named by Heart Rhythm Society, ACC, and AHA as quote-unquote prolonged QTC. But the problem there is in an asymptomatic host with no family history, those lines in the sand have a sub 1% positive predictive value for long QT. So they're the wrong lines in the sand when we're talking about an incidental ECG finding right. that could prompt a long QT evaluation. Right, but it's different in someone that may have a strong family history and so on. Exactly. I know this is simplistic, but you have made the diagnosis um, when are you going to treat with beta blockers, uh, sympathectomy, which you, you yourself have been very involved in, when do you put in an ICD? I, I, I realize it is a simplistic question, but. Yeah, well, I think we have to start with the vast majority of all of these channelopathic patients, whether it's long QT, Brugada, CPVT, these are not device diseases. These, for the most part, are patients who can be well-treated without device therapy. And in our own long QT syndrome clinic, less than 10 to 15% of all of my long QT patients are being managed with a defibrillator. And that's juxtaposed to uh, references out there that in some programs in North America, they will tell you that 75 to 80% of their long QT patients are being managed with a defibrillator. Now, if you have a long QT interval patient with a family history who has had an out-of-hospital arrest successfully resuscitated, 
would you ever not treat them with an ICD? Well, for the most part there, you get one death attempt. So right. if you've had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, almost everybody would agree with universal ICD therapy as secondary prevention. But the point has been made that if that happened to have been an unrecognized, undiagnosed, untreated long QT type 1 host with flavor number 1 long QT syndrome, where we know beta blockers are exquisitely protective, or especially beta blockers in denervation, there have been a, some individuals who would say maybe you wouldn't have to do a defibrillator even in that extreme setting. I'm not quite ready to go there, but I think what we can do is say that most long QT patients can be managed with just beta blockers. And then when would you, in a patient who has not had an event, when would you add sympathectomy to or denervation to beta blocker therapy? Well, left cardiac sympathetic denervation or sympathectomy is relatively new. Although the surgery is old, it's almost 100 years old as a surgery. But in our program, we have really two groups where we're offering denervation therapy. The first is the person with extremely high-risk long QT who's having frequent VF terminating ICD shocks. In our program, okay. one shock is enough to yeah. offer denervation. The other program, the other group of patients is the person who's not tolerating beta blocker therapy. In the past, we'd say, you're not tolerating your medicine, now you get a defibrillator. I think denervation uh, offers a simpler solution with less comorbidities. And if the person has fainted while on beta blocker therapy, in the past we've had to go straight to the defibrillator. Maybe we don't have to go straight to the defibrillator. We can offer denervation in that setting. Uh, Mike, just very quickly, catecholamine, catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. I always have a problem pronouncing it. Occurs with exercise, highly malignant. Probably more malignant than long QT. Treatment? Uh, treatment is, in the past, Sorry, we were... no event. Yeah. Just have a patient with a family history and... Uh, beta blocker therapy has been treatment of choice, but there's exciting new therapy with flecainide. Uh, flecainide really? has shown tremendous uh, potential in CPVT because besides being a sodium channel blocker, it is a ryanidine receptor calcium release channel inhibitor. Yes, of course, and, and that, that goes right to the genetic substrate. It goes right to the substrate. And so we which are... Is, which is an abnormality of the cardiac ryanidine receptor. Exactly. And when, in fact, we're trying now in CPVT to not go to a defibrillator because of increased reports of the so-called ICD storm in yeah. CPVT patients where the defibrillator becomes potentially part of the problem and you get this spiral why, of chaos. Why is it part of the problem? Just lead stimulation? Well, if you get shocked and stimulated, adrenaline release, which yes. then breaks it, but breaks it for a short time. And so we now are trying to put a defibrillator in as last resort in most CPVT that's, patients. That's, Mike, that's really, that really is interesting. And then uh, just to wrap up with the big three, regardless, and I know we can't deal with that in the remaining two minutes, but one key question for you. In a patient with a Brigada syndrome who has had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, I think the management is, is very clear-cut. Yeah, defibrillator. Defibrillator. What about the patient um, where there is a family history of Brigada's, but this patient, and, and this patient has the ECG manifestations, but there's a family history of sudden cardiac death. Defibrillator, is there a role for EP testing? So well, they have Brigada's. Right. We've got it on the electrocardiogram, whether it's type 1 or type 2, but they have Brigada's. And there's a family history of sudden cardiac death. 
I think family history, we, we're learning that family history is not a personal risk factor for the inherited heart rhythm, genetic heart rhythm diseases, in contrast to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where family history yes. is a risk factor for the person in front of us. It doesn't look like that's true in Brugada and long QT and CPVT. So is there a role for EP testing? Probably not. The debate continues across the world. There's the Brugada camp says yes. There's the Priorians, uh, Dr. Sylvia Priorian <laughs> colleagues that say no. no. And I think the tide, the evidence has turned. Arthur Wilda had a paper in 2010 in Jack and this year, 2012 from, in Jack. Uh, from Holland. From Holland. Yeah. And now Sylvia Priori in 2012. That really suggests that if you have a type 1 Brugada ECG pattern, you may or may not have Brugada syndrome, but if you have that pattern and you have never had a personal symptom, that there doesn't appear to be an informative role of programmed electrical stimulation for to assess for inducibility. And so for that asymptomatic host, all we really would re advise is regular follow-up, brugadadrugs.org avoidance of certain medications, particularly anesthetic agents during elective surgeries that could put the Brugada person from an asymptomatic state to danger, and fever reduction. Fever reduction, yeah, very important in children. Yes. So a final concluding sentence. Well, I think uh, the genetic heart rhythm diseases is a fascinating spectrum of diseases in the heart rhythm specialty community, and we have a long ways to go to reduce the the knowledge gradient, the knowledge gap that exists within our own community, and we have to be sure that we get the warning signs out to the front lines, that of sudden, unexplained, exercise-induced syncope, auditory-triggered syncope, exercise-auditory-triggered seizures, that, that the front lines are thinking that this could be the warning sign indicating the presence of one of these conditions. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.